Yeah, okay. <clears throat> All right. <clears throat> you ready? Uh-huh. <clears throat> Do you know I completely blanked on how to say hello then? Yeah. <laughs> oh, <That's... laughs> that John Byrne issue of Superman in Infinite Crisis. Yes. Yeah, that was really good, in that? By Byrne and Nelson. Mm. Okay. Should we start again? Okay. All right. Because I went to say hello then and I completely blanked on the word hello. Yeah. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Hey Kids Comics. I thought you were expecting me to fill it in there. No, 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 you, you can join in if you want to, it'll be nice. No, I think I'll skip this you one. Skip, yeah. You're skipping this in the next six weeks or so? Yeah. <laughs> um, what are we doing today? Oh yeah, I'm Andrew Lowell. What are we doing today? Uh, you know the thing Andrew you've been Lowell. talking about for a year? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've been, I have been planning this now since well before Christmas. Uh, and by planning it, I mean reading lots of comics that were largely irrelevant to what we're covering, mm-hmm. as I decided what we were covering and whittling it down and, and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And I've been watching just like a ton of related materials, haven't I? Yeah. And I'm Michael Oland. And I'm, yeah. And <laughs> <laughs> what I'm talking about, of course, is this is the first part of our mammoth seven-week look at the first, and arguably, the greatest superhero of them all, Superman. So we hope you enjoy it, because I've put a lot of effort into it. Yeah. Michael's just kind of does what Michael does. Hey, I show up, that's... That's, uh, yeah, that's hard work for you. Yeah, that's true. Before we begin... Yes. This is our new opening credits. So we hope you enjoy them. This is the first time that Michael's heard these... Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey kids, comics! Clark Kent has a job. I just want to go on a date. Faulty metaphor. Kryptonite kills. You're assuming I met the green kryptonite. I was referring, of course, to the red kryptonite which drains Superman of his powers. Wrong, the gold kryptonite's a power sucker. The red kryptonite mutates Superman in some sort of weird... Guys, reality. Besides, I can just tell something's wrong. My spider sense is tingling. You're... Spider sense. Oh, stay behind and put around in the back cave with crusty old Alfred here. Ah, oh, no, I am no Alfred, so I forget Alfred had a job. But gee, Mr. White, if Clark and Lois got all the good stories, I'll never be a good reporter. Mm-hmm. Jimmy Olsen jokes are pretty much going to be last time. Sorry. Avengers Assemble, let's get it going. Hey, kids, comics! What do you think of them? It was very uh, on topic. Do you think? Yeah. <laughs> do you know how long that took? You couldn't really hear the dialogue, but... Oh, you, you can hear it better when it's yeah. played through your earphones. Yeah. yeah. So, what do you think of that? Yeah, it was... Okay? It was... <laughs> it was. And then yeah. you're just going to leave it at that. <laughs> it works. It, it does. Yeah. And, um... Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm happier with that one than I was with the two that we played a couple of weeks ago. Even though it's still the same tune in many ways. Yeah. You just like that song. I do. I love that. I love that piece of music. It's Michael Giacano and one of the tracks from the Cars 2 soundtrack. Which is a largely forgettable film. Yeah. Despite Michael Caine being in it. But it's an excellent soundtrack. Anyway, having stunned Michael with that excellent, excellent slice of opening creditage. Opening credits are always difficult for shows, you know that thing? I didn't want to do... first impressions. Yeah, there is that. And I didn't want to do one of those where it's just clips from movies and such. No, so you went for a clip so from So I went for something that was clips from TV shows. 
<laughs> I don't know. In my head, that made sense. <laughs> but maybe not. Anyway, before we get to, to Superman, we do have a couple of emails. We've only got a couple this week, so... Uh, this one shouldn't take us too long. Our first email is the final catch-up from Jay Ferguson. Hello again, Jay. I think he's emailed us every week, three weeks now. Has he? I think so. It's very nice. Feels weird after sending all this nonsense to you guys that I'm finally caught up. Very weird. Listening to the A vs. X stuff, I do think it's interesting to see the differences and similarities between people with X-Men histories. So different. As far as Emma goes, she became a hero in the mid-90s when she became a mentor along with Banshee of the Generation X team. I kind of feel like after the face turn for her, they really did sell it in the little moments. And for me, I felt that in the end, while she may be an utter biatch at times and do bad things, she really is a hero at heart. And at the end of it, she's a good person who has made some poor choices and had a hard life. I can't get behind her being a villain. Scott, on the other hand, following Xavier's last not-quite death at the hands of, spoilers, Messiah Complex, might not have started out as in his first appearance as a villain, but after that he moved pretty quickly into supervillainy. He had a death squad for two years' worth of books. Oh, yeah. Did he? Yeah. I've not read that. Um, Wolverine. And the death squad. Had Is that the name of the book? No, it was X-Force or something, and they had their own little private death team. Well, say, if he needed a political leader out of the picture and didn't want anyone to know about it, then Wolverine would drop down. Really? Yeah. That sounds appallingly bad. This book sold for two years. Fair enough. All right. Well, I think that's what Jay said. The end of the series, I think, has a lot more to do with comeuppance for the unbelievable things he'd been up to for years before this story, and not based on any creator thinking that he's a squirt, regardless of the truth of that statement. I totally agree with you about Magneto and Clermont's run, Andrew. I love the stories they told with Magneto as the leader of the X-Men, but at its core, I'm not really sure the turn made sense. Now, I feel like it has been earned, though, because it made sense for him to become a part of the X-Men more recently, because there were too few mutants around for anyone to be really picky about things. And in the end, Scott seemed to be doing pretty much everything Magneto would have wanted. And by the way, A vs. X Consequences, whilst I haven't read it, based on what I've heard people covering it, it's mostly about what happens to Cyclops after A vs. X, so it probably could happen during whatever is going on in Uncanny Avengers without upsetting any continuity stuff. And Iceman has been able to put himself back together after breaking for a really long time. Andrew, if you're interested in X-Men currently, I cannot recommend Wolverine and the X-Men highly enough. That book is so much fun and has great writing by Jason Aaron and great art by Chris Bacala. It's pretty good. Is it? Mm. I've only read the tiny issues. A couple of people have told me that Wolverine and the X-Men is worth reading. Mm. So is that like 20-odd issues in at this point? Something like that, So there must be a couple of trade paperbacks I could probably pick up for cheap at Comic Marts and stuff. Yeah, alright, fair enough. If you aren't feeling the fun in current Marvel books, I really could not give a better recommendation than Wolverine and the X-Men. You guys talked about really liking the story in the last issue of A vs. X Versus, written by Christopher Hastings, and you might want to check out the webcomic he writes and draws, Dr. McNinja, which tells a doctor who is also a ninja. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. McNinja's a great name. Who tries to fight evil and cure strange ailments with the help of his gorilla receptionist and velociraptor riding young Mexican bandit sidekick. I think you've just sold that. Yeah. Too. It's pretty awesome. As Kirby said, don't ask, just buy. Although, come to that, it is free on the internet, so you don't even have to buy it. Somebody spoiled the ending of Amazing Spider-Man 700 for me, and I feel really weird about it. I trust Slot and think it's an incredibly interesting direction to go in, but I totally understand the undiluted fanboy rage stirred by the story. I really don't know how he writes his way out of the end, because it must end at some point. I guess we'll see. Uh, well, I finally read Amazing Spider-Man 700 and Avenging Spider-Man. Was it 15? I've not read that one yet. Followed but, yeah. it. Have you read Amazing Spider-Man 700? Mm-hmm. 
We're probably going to talk about Amazing Spider-Man 700 for a minute, so if you've not heard it, stick your fingers in your ears and go, la la la, la 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 la. Which you can't do if you haven't headphones. That's true. Well, you could just pop your headphones out, couldn't you? Yeah, but then how how do you know when we turn back? That's true. Mm. We'll make a beep noise. Okay. Alright. What did you think of Amazing Spider-Man 700? I thought it was pretty... Once again, the hype... Let it down. Yeah. So that's the only trouble again now. Comics a month late, isn't it? Mm. Not only do we have to avoid spoilers for a month, but we're bombarded with hype because we've not read Superior Spider-Man 1 yet. No. Because it hasn't arrived in our little comics packet yet. Um, do you want to know what I thought of it? Go on. I enjoyed it. I don't see what all the fuss is about and all the death threats that Dan Slott's got. Considering they've already killed off Spider-Man. Twice before. Well, that as well, but the ending is in the story. Okay. Am I the only one who thought the ending was out of the blue? No. In the last two pages, suddenly like he was having these flashbacks and decides to be a good person. I thought that was pretty rushed and out of the blue. No, see, what I got from it is that Peter Parker's consciousness, his soul, for want of a better word, is still in that body. As is Dr. Octopus's consciousness slash soul. Okay. And Dr. Octopus is currently the dominant personality. Mm-hmm. And all that stuff at the end is Peter's personality fighting his way through. Now, I could have completely misinterpreted this. Yeah, well, the way I read it was Dr. Octopus was remembering Peter's life. Yeah, he's got Peter's and memories. And what was forcing him to do Yes. It. But it was himself in that position. I, I still thought that just came yeah. out of the blue. Dr. Octopus is the dominant personality, but Peter's memories... I've forced him to take a different path. Yeah, but like I was saying, it just came out of nowhere in the last two Well, pages. this is my theory. I think Peter Parker's personality is still in there. Oh, yeah. And at some point, Peter will become the dominant personality Which again. Which is right to that, though. Yeah. But so I'm, it's, I'm just kind of expecting them to do the completely unexpected and not write themselves out of it. Well, I've said before, it's just like the Buffy the Vampire Slayer episode, This Year's Girl and Who Are You? Which is just like Fantastic Four number 50. Yeah. It's a guy who's a villain who, through the gibbledy gobbledy gobbledy wibbly wobbly gobbledy goot way of comic book science, has managed to take over somebody's mind mm-hmm. or body. So in Buffy, Buffy and Faith swap places. Yeah. In Fantastic Four Fifty, this bizarre monobrowed bald guy took over the body of the thing, mm-hmm. and everybody treating you as a hero. Yeah has an impact on you. It's all about the perception of you that you yourself think of you. What you think of yourself. Yeah. So as people start trying you to teach... As people start treating you differently, Mm -hmm. you start acting differently. So in the Fantastic Four story, the guy became heroic and couldn't let Reed Richards die. Yeah. Because he was now the thing. In Buffy, Faith was being treated like Buffy. So she became heroic. Yes, but they're all one-off stories. This is the status quo now. It isn't, though. It is, though. It's not. But this is... No, 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 it isn't. It's a story. As is the status quo. No, it isn't. The status quo is Peter Parker is Spider-Man. Not anymore. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Yes, it is. Not anymore, it's not. So, in what way? Go on. In the way that Peter Parker's no longer Spider-Man. In the sense that, like, Miles Morales is Spider-Man. That's the status quo now. Yes, in Ultimate Spider-Man, yes. So not in no. This is not a status quo. Yes, it this is. is a story in which the end of it, the status quo, will be back to being Peter Parker as Spider-Man. All right. So, the right, so you said it's, it's not normal then. No, it's not normal. Right. That's not what you said. But this is the status quo. No, it isn't. 
the status quo is something that has always been thus. Clark Kent will always be Superman. So when you were in Death of Superman, Superman died at the end of part one of that three-part story, right? Yes. Did you accept that that was going to be the status quo from now on? We would never see Clark Kent Superman back ever again. When you were reading that at the time, did you know that was part one of the story? You knew that Reign of the Superman was coming up and that Funeral for a Friend was coming up. Right, but did you know that Superman would come back? You didn't know he would come back. Well, there you go then. It's like now, we don't know if Peter will come back. But we knew he would come back, (laughs) if you know what I mean. And it's the same with this. This is not a status quo change in any way. This is part one of the end of part one, sorry, of a however long story Dan Slott's telling with Spider-Man. And when it's all done and dusted, it will be like Death and Return of Superman. Peter Parker will be back in the red and blue. Did did you really look me in the eye and tell me you honestly believe Marvel is going to leave Dr. Octopus inhabiting Peter Parker's body is now Spider-Man forevermore? Tell me you believe that. For a long period of time. Fine, but that's not status quo. Okay. That's a story. Right. When does a story become normal, though? Miles Morales is normal. I honestly believe Ultimate Spider-Man's not bringing Peter Parker back. Okay, so when will this become? It won't. Well, when they absolutely all right, all right. there's no trace of Peter Parker left. If you've got whatsoever. to explain this to somebody, right, you've got a little kid, right. ten years old, eight, ten years old, they've okay. just watched Amazing Spider-Man, right. or the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies, and they've gone ape for it, and they love it. Okay. And then you give them an Amazing Spider-Man comic, and you say, well, actually, Peter Parker's not Spider-Man at the moment. It's his body with his mind, but he's been taken over by the mind of Dr. Octopus, who's actually died, but Peter Parker's mind is in Dr. Octopus's body, and he's dead now. And that kid's going to go, where's the PlayStation? Okay, so say a kid's just watched the Sam Raimi Spider-Man mm. movie, right? And so you give him a comic and say, oh yeah, he was married to Mary Jane, but now he's not married to Mary Jane because Peter Parker revealed the identity of Spider-Man and then uh, Aunt May got shot and then they had to uh, uncover the secret. That's irrelevant. Now he was not married to Mary Jane in the, Spy- the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies. So right, yeah. that is an irrelevant point. So you can pick up a Spider-Man comic after the Sam Raimi movies and Peter Parker is Spider-Man. And that's all the kid needs to know. So all, all the kid needs to know now is Peter Parker is Spider-Man. Peter Parker is still Spider-Man. But, but he's, he's not, not is he? Peter Parker. And so by making it this complicated, they've essentially nullified the idea that this is going to be the way it is. I don't care what Steve Wacker says. Okay. Steve Wacker lies out of his ass. <laughs> I don't care what Dan Slott says. This is not going to remain this way. If Peter Parker's not back in the suit for Amazing Spider-Man 2, I'll be impressed. Because that's what I think will happen. I think they'll have it at most two years. At most? Yeah. Peter Parker will be back in the suit for Spider-Man 2. Because the thing is, it's not even about the story. It's who has the biggest balls in comics now. Why do you think that? With DC's reboot. Like, Marvel's reboot. So it's all about the controversy? Yeah. So it's not about the story? Yeah, it could be. See, we're sitting here saying this could be Dan Slott's big story, but Dan Slott's sitting in the Marvel offices going, how can we milk more money? Uh, he doesn't need to milk more money. Amazing Spider-Man 700 made them something like $1.5 million. Fair enough. See, there you go. And would yeah. have done that if they didn't kill Peter Parker? Mm, they've not killed off Peter Parker. <laughs> killed off Peter Parker's subconsciousness? No, they killed off his body. No, they've, well, see, they've not even done that. Yeah. See, this is the point that I'm trying... It's just another story. There's no need to get this bent out of shape about it. 
when I guessed what had happened, and then I guessed why Amazing Spider-Man 700 ended, I hadn't read the issue. Yeah. And there's those little clues throughout the entire issue that tell you Peter Parker is still in that body. His consciousness, his memories, everything that makes him him is still in there. He's not done a full swap. Well, I didn't read that his consciousness was still in there. I think because that's what's guiding Dr. Octopus to do good. I read that it was his memories. His memories are still in there, but what are you if not your memories? If I take away your memories, you're not you anymore. Which is why amnesiacs have a really hard time of it. Because they can get amnesia and they're perfect, they're still them, Mm. but they don't know anybody. And suddenly they have to form entirely new relationships with people. And they suddenly may not love their wife anymore because they don't know her. Yeah. So without your memories, you're not you. So the fact that he's still got Peter Parker's memories means Peter Parker's still in there. So by that logic, Dr. Octopus is Peter Parker. Yeah. Okay. But Dr. Octopus's personality is more pervasive. Yeah. And ultimately, Peter will become the dominant personality and we'll be back to where we were. Okay. So in two years, we'll be sitting there. Yeah, saying we're just back to where we were. Yeah. In which, and I have no problem with him telling a story. I don't understand why people have got really bent out of shape about this. No matter how long it lasts. No. Because you were complaining that he wasn't Swamp Thing until issue nine. He wasn't, because that was that is padding. Yeah. If you're buying a book called Swamp Thing, then I expect the Swamp Thing to be in it. Yeah. I shouldn't have to wait nine issues for Swamp Thing to show up. I'm not buying an issue of Spider-Man now. I'm not seeing Spider-Man. Spider-Man's in it. Spider-Man's doing spidery stuff. He's just not Spider-Man. He's just Dr. Octopus. He's in control of the body. Yeah. But that, it's just a tale. Okay. I don't remember the... It's just this. a ride. And yeah, it's just a ride and you can get off it anytime you want. But it's the same with Nightfall. Mm. Did you really think at any point... Re- I mean, you came into Nightfall when it was all done and dusted. Yeah. So it's not really fair for me to ask you this question. But when I was first reading Nightfall, at no point... Did I truly believe we wouldn't see Bruce Wayne back in the bat suit at some point? Yeah, but it still it meant it didn't mean I didn't enjoy that story. Yeah, it's the same with Superman. At no point did I think we'd seen the end of Clark Kent Superman. But I enjoyed Brain of the Superman immensely, mm-hmm. and that's why I'm like I'm now all right. Dan, show me what you've got. Okay, and there you go. So uh, the, the, we talked a bit too long about that. So yeah, beep. I should take a note that about, um, I should put in the notes and the fast forward 15 minutes Yeah, if you don't want to hear the amazing Spider-Man discussion uh, back to Jay's email which we've totally lost the plot with because we got onto a topic of amazing Spider-Man sorry about that um, and now to the older episodes they're all very nice but I think so far as things go they are fun and certainly a lot better than a lot of other people's early episodes but you two have only improved well thank you very much 100% behind you on the creepiness of Gary Frank's contemporary work. Those covers of young Clark looking too much like Christopher Reeve with creepy dead eyes and way too big of a head on a tiny body give me nightmares. And they're kind of an example of when a great artist tries to improve themselves and fails miserably. Not that there aren't sparks of the artist he used to be, but his art lost so much of the life that he's necessary to be strong comics artist. He's Speaking of which, now. have you re- oh, has he gone better again? Oh, I think his recent work's better in Justice League and Batman right. one. In Shazam. Yeah. Have you read uh, Captain America 3? No, I've not read it either. But... John Romita Jr. draws a flashback to the 20s where Steve Rogers is a kid. Oh, yeah. It's awful. A huge head on that tiny body. Yeah, his head is massive. That was my problem with his hit girl. It looks like a bobblehead. Yeah. It's And I love John Jr., but I was reading that going, what the... <laughs> 
he wouldn't be able to walk down the street without falling over. Dragging his head quite yeah. <laughs> He's just dragging his head behind him. <laughs> That's funny. Oh, dear me. Uh, Jay's email continue. Most of the rest of the things that happened in those episodes have already started to fade, so I don't think I have much to say, but I will have to take you to task over a few things I remembered enough that I felt like arguing about. <laughs> Firstly, what was all the hate levelled at the Legion and the Doom Patrol? Uh, I've never liked the Doom Patrol, and I've never got into the Legion. Um, I don't hate them. No. I don't begrudge people that do like them, but certainly in the case of Doom Patrol, I think it's been a four-time loser at this point. How many times does a book have to fail before a publisher goes, maybe there's not a market for this? I'd say the Doom Patrol interests me, but the only Doom Patrol I've ever read and enjoyed is Morrison's stuff. Well, he says, he continues, I know Michael has said a nice thing about Morrison's run on the book, and while I agree, I think that Andrew, judging by his response to Flex Mentalo, is going to find Doom Patrol the sort of Morrison he does not like. I mean, that's fair <laughs> yeah, to say. Just the name Morrison, kind of. No. Oh, no, no, I, I think that's fair to say. I can, remend, I can recommend without reservation the Silver Age Doom Patrol run, which is collected in two showcase volumes. It really is a lot of fun. I'm much more like Lee Kirby FF than the X-Men. It is more than often compared to. The final issue of that run is a glorious work of staggering beauty, and probably the biggest reason they're still remembered today. Wasn't the last, di- but wasn't the last issue of Doom Patrol, and forgive me because I've never read it, but wasn't the last issue of the Silver Age Doom Patrol the last issue? Well, they all died. Yeah. yeah. Wasn't if they'd ended it there mm. and never carried it on again, I would probably not have any kind of problems with Doom Patrol at all. Because it wasn't like they were trying to bring yeah. back a dead puppy. Yeah, it's, if the, as far as I recall, and again I could be wrong, Doom Patrol ended. Mm. And if they'd left it as that finite Silver Age comic book run and not constantly tried to exhume its corpse, yeah. I'd probably be fine with it. The only time I've liked Doom Patrol was in Wolfman and Perez's run where they brought back Robot Man, but the rest of them were dead. Yeah. Weren't they? Mm. So they weren't peeing all over the legend. So I had no problem with that. And I think I think a lot of it is just, why are you constantly trying to resurrect this dead horse? Yeah. Some things you've just got to let go. And that's what I think about Doom Patrol. I'm not dissing on people who do like them at all. Superboy and the Legion's a different thing entirely, in that as much as I love Superman because we're going to spend seven weeks talking about it. Yeah. I never got into Superboy. I just didn't read Superboy comics as a kid. And although my first comic book Superman origin was the one that had Superboy in it, so it wasn't the one from 1940, it was the one from 1948 that had Superboy in it, my large exposure to Superman was the film, where he skips over being Superboy. And then it was the burn run, where he never was Superboy. That was my origin to Superman, the film. So... Because my thinking with that is always, if he was Superboy, it takes away from Superman. Yeah, but I liked how the Legion being inspired by Superman was the inspiration for him to be Superman. I kind of liked that, but... They were inspired by Superboy, weren't they? I thought they were inspired by Superman. No, they were inspired by Superboy, which was also another thing I never... Well, it's the same thing, then. Yeah, which is another thing I never got. Yeah. You'd be inspired by Superman. It's, this is just a, a personal bias, and I, you know, I don't. Again, I have no problem. There are a number of good Superboy stories that I've read and enjoyed. Yeah. But you can take or leave Superboy as far as I'm concerned. I actually prefer a Superman that never was a Superboy, mm. because no You're one's going to be. Anything. Yeah, and no one's going to be going. Oh, look, a man can fly! They're going to be going. Is that Superboy? <laughs> 
and he's going to can you imagine as well how many times he had to say it's Superman now yeah and somebody went who was the lucky lady <laughs> and he's like stop it so no so the Legion were linked with Superboy and I never got into Superboy ergo I never got into the Legion and a lot of this does come down to what was available to me mm. there was no Legion comics weren't available to me so I never read them so it's that simple I like Superman uh, Jay continues I guess now that I've caught up I don't know what I shall do perhaps you shall not hear much from me and I'll wait a long time to do an info dump or maybe I'll try and be weekly but I may find it hard to make much from just a single episode besides that was well good and here's one or two things I wanted to inform or rant about don't know time will tell keep on trucking thank you Jay thank you very much I, I did read your recommendations for the Doom Patrol and um, if I was going to read Doom Patrol I would give the Silver Age bit a go Certainly more than I would give any of the modern stuff a go. I did try and read John Byrne's run. I thought it was boring as hell. And I like Byrne's stuff. Mm. So, our next email is called Desperate for Letters. It's by Caleb Gerard. Hello, Caleb. Howdy, Mike and Andy. He's put you first. I know, that's... I'm you instantly like him, yeah. <laughs> Your continued enthusiasm throughout the whole A vs. X coverage was impressive. I say this since mine waned after the Spider-Man getting his head handed to him issue. Not sure what else to say since it really is all in your episode and about 50 other podcasts, including my own Tales from the Long Box, not to be confused, not to be confused with views. Plug, plug, plug. Put his own plug in the email. Mm. Prove. Big thumbs up. I agree that the Marvel Now books have been less than new reader accessible, with the exception of maybe Wade's Hulk book and X-Men Legacy, starring Xavier's kid Legion, whom we saw wading into the ocean with his dad. Glad they're sucking in Daredevil and Hawkeye, since they are issue-to-issue very reader-friendly. Have you read Hawkeye yet? Uh, the first four issues. You like them? Yeah. Uh, I keep thinking I should try and be funny, or at least clever in this letter, but having just come back from a room whilst listening to your podcast of part three, I'm just funnyless and my clever was left at around mile three. You really need to get off the fence with Spider-Man and give it a shot. I think we've just discussed that enough for yeah. today. <laughs> I'm not really a fan of the new direction, but all leading up to it so far for the last couple of years has been awesome. I'm going to hold on to my faith in Dan Slot. I want to say that what makes a podcast particularly enjoyable for me is when I want to engage in the conversation in a meaningful way. Well, someone watching me run whilst listening to your podcast will likely think I'm either crazy or talking on the phone. I'll leave it to others to decide if I'm crazy, but I'm not talking on the phone. Well, I guess I should work since I'm, well, at work, and I'm just avoiding an especially time-consuming task. <laughs> well, if you want to avoid working, send us an email. We heartily approve of that. Um, our final email, Emma Frost doesn't just understand clothes by James Hunt. Hi, James. Hello, Leylands. Happy New Year, Valentine's Day, Easter or Christmas again. Time seems to be moving very fast, what with interviews and stuff. Anyway, I spoke about looking forward to the Avengers vs. X-Men coverage to Andrew. All in all, I enjoyed the series and definitely don't agree with Bleeding Cool's article about it being a poor crossover. It was very enjoyable and easy to pick up, as I have very little history with the X-Men other than the animated series. I too got Hope confused with Rachel. Oh, I'm glad that wasn't just me then. You know, I do think Avengers vs. X-Men is a poor crossover. What brings you to that conclusion after spending three weeks discussing it? It's a good story, but it's a poor crossover. Is it, though? The events don't cross over. There's multiple retellings of the same story. Yeah. All your contradictions, your issues that don't really matter at all. Right. So it was a poor crossover, but a good story. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Anyway, to my main point, Emma Frost. More importantly, her inability to get dressed in the morning. A normal costume is pretty revealing, but her Phoenix Force outfit took it to an all-new level. Or so I thought. 
I bought the X-Force Sex Plus Violence trade for £4, which, despite the horrid name, I had heard was pretty fun, and in fact is worth a read, especially for four quid. The trade also included New X-Men Annual 2001 by Grant Morrison and penciled by Lenniel Francis Yu. Uh, Emma's outfit is very revealing and isn't helped by the positioning and face she's pulling. Later in the issue, she tries to flirt with Scott, and again I've attached a picture of the panel. In it, she has scurrily big arms and looks like she could crush you, and is weirdly wearing more clothes in the form of a black dress. Therefore, I have deduced that Emma doesn't understand clothes, and her misunderstanding may have resulted in Scott's posing pouch Phoenix Force outfit. Scott spent far too much time with her, and her bad fashion sense has rubbed off on him. Well, that thing on the outside of his outfit pointing towards his nether regions, yeah. somebody's rubbing off on it. Anyway, happy 2015, or whatever year it is. <laughs> James. Thanks, James. East Yorkshire at the time of the email, but maybe Bristol when this is on the podcast. P.S. I made the worker at Forbidden Planet in Bristol have a geekgasm when I bought the first trade of Irredeemable by Mark Wade. Oh my, what a good book. Yeah, they covered that on Comics Monthly Monday this week. Mm-hmm. And I've been interested in it because it's Mark Wade, but the fact that all four of them, Scott, Chris, Mike, and Paul, hello, uh, all liked it has made me go, oh, all right, I'm going to check that out. Would you read it along with the Incorruptible? Do they cross over or happen at the same time? They happen or, at the same time. But they don't cross over? No, but I think it's both the same story told from two different points of view. Right. Okay, fair enough. I may give that a go as well, then. We'll have to see. Uh, we will take a break and then be right back. You are cordially invited to attend a podcast that observes the unfolding events of history. Come with me and observe the birth and growth of a legend. From the pages of a 10-cent pulp comic book to the newspapers, radio program adventures, theatrical films, and more. The dawn of the superhero. Golden Age Superman. Available on iTunes and at goldenagesuperman.libsen.com. Every legend has a beginning. And we're back. And Michael's stuffing his face with biscuit again. Mm. It's like we've never been away, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. you've not done this for a while. Have I not? No, you've not come from Andrew back and stuffing your face with chocolate biscuits. So it's quite nice to have him back, Mr. Chocolate, Be- chocolate Biscuit Scoffer Facer. Okay. <laughs> and here it is. So here it is. No, it's so what it is, isn't it? Mm. Anyway. I don't even remember the song. What is that song? Are you bleeding? Yeah, I've just cut me out. Um... Dan, David Rice. David Rice. Yeah. Danny Rice. Damien. Damien Rice. Damien Fried Rice. Damien Fried Rice. So what it is. Or something like that. Anyway. Uh, our mammoth. Seven week. And so it is. Count them. Seven weeks. Yeah, I ran out of fingers. There's <laughs> only ten of them. Our mammoth seven week look at the man of tomorrow. In the endless reaches of the universe, there once existed a planet known as Krypton, a planet that burned like a green star in the distant heavens. There, civilization was far advanced and had brought forth a race of supermen whose mental and physical powers were developed to the absolute peak of human perfection. 
But there came a day when giant quakes threatened to destroy Krypton forever. One of the planet's leading scientists, sensing the approach of doom, placed his infant son in a small rocket ship and sent it hurtling in the direction of the Earth just as Krypton exploded. The rocket ship sped through star-studded space, landing safely on Earth with its precious burden, Krypton's sole survivor. A passing motorist found the uninjured child and took it to an orphanage. As the years went by and the child grew to maturity, he found himself possessed of amazing physical powers. Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. The infant of Krypton is now the man of steel. Superman! To best be in a position to use his amazing powers in a never-ending battle for truth and justice, Superman has assumed the disguise of Clark Kent, mild-mannered reporter for a great metropolitan newspaper. The origins of Superman and his creation at the hands of 19-year-old Cleveland residents Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster Did not happen tomorrow. Did not happen tomorrow. No. But it has been covered many <laughs> times in print and elsewhere by people far more qualified and eloquent than us. But the short version of the legend is this. In response to the burgeoning science fiction market, Jerry Siegel awoke one night with a vision of a hero. What if he had a secret identity like Zorro or the Scarlet Pimpernel? What if he could leap and had fantastic strength like John Carter of Mars? What if he was a stranger in a strange land like Tarzan? What if he was similar to long-forgotten characters like Nightwind, the Grey Seal and other pulp heroes like the Shadow? What if his garb was similar to other science fiction heroes like Flash Gordon? What if he owed a debt, however slight, to the 1930 novel Gladiator by Philip Wiley? What if he was a champion of the oppressed, like Robin Hood? What if he was like all of these, but a unique creation, greater than the sum of his parts? And what if, unlike Siegel's earlier 1933 tale, The Reign of the Superman, this character was a good guy? And what if he could leap an eighth of a mile, jump over a ten-story building, run faster than an express train, lift tremendous weights and crush steel in his burr hands? Surely such a character would sell like gangbusters. Especially if you were called Superman. Siegel immediately recruited his best friend Joe Shuster, and they began spitballing ideas, finally settling on the look both of them wanted for the character. A blue unitard, a bright red cape with red shorts over the unitard, and a stylized letter S on the chest, and began trying to sell the character. It was a long, hard slog. Comics, in their infancy at that point, were mostly reformatted reprintings of the most popular newspaper strips of the day. Book Rogers, Flash Gordon, Mickey Mouse and Popeye all vied for newsstand space with Terry and the Pirates, Blondie and Lil Abner. And they were all doing very well, thank you very much. The final selling of Superman was, according to legend, pure dumb luck. Harry Donenfield, at that point publisher of Detective Comics Inc., was casting around for material to print a comic magazine of all new material, not just recycled newspaper strip cast-offs. By chance, he happened upon the Superman material created by Siegel and Schuster, and satisfied with their work on other strips, Slam Bradley and Dr. Colt, amongst others, he ordered the sample to be reformatted from the newspaper strip style it had been created in to be a full-fledged comic book. Action Comics number one boasted a June 1938 cover date and had a cover which has become iconic. The Superman hoists an automobile above his head and smashes it into a rock as civilians flee. 
who, what, why and how are all questions left for the reader to ponder as they shell over the ten cents as beyond the title of the magazine, the month and year of sale and the price, no cover copy is presented to give the image context. The newspaper strip's origins are belied in the story itself, with the panel grids all being easily chopped up into daily, easily digestible chunks, but the raw power of the story is undeniable. The Superman was off and running. of his 75-year career, Superman has conquered every single entertainment medium yet created. From best-selling comic books to a radio series that added crucial elements to the mythos, as well as making him a household name when radio was all that there was in terms of media. From there, he starred in the critically acclaimed Fleeshamp cartoons, and then Saturday morning serials. The leap to television in the 50s cemented his reputation, and plays, further animated series, big budget movies, video games, and then back to radio and TV have gifted the man of tomorrow with a profile to kill for. Every single decade since the 1940s has had a multimedia version of Superman to call their own, from Bud Collier in the Fleischers to Kirk Allen, George Reeves to the Super Friends, Christopher Reeve to Dean Cain, Tom Welling to Brandon Ralph and now Henry Cavill. The familiar S-Shield now adorns everything from cooks' aprons to sweatshirts, bumper stickers to tattoos, but through it all, the comic books have continued, refining, recreating, and in some cases rebooting the Metropolis Marvel to keep him fresh and abreast of the times. And it's these that we'll be celebrating. Seven shows, each from a different era of Superman, and all concentrated on the comics of different decades. From the social crusader of the 30s to the mythological Marvel pining for his lost planet of the 50s and 60s. From the additions to his legends, such as Flight and his cousin Supergirl, his weaknesses, such as Red and Green Kryptonite, his loves, like Lois Lane and Lana Lang, his enemies, like Lex Luthor and Brainiac, his friendly and then not-so-friendly relationship, with the Batman, to a mighty crossover with his opposite number over a rival company, this series of Hey Kids comics will celebrate every era of the last son of Krypton, from the medium whence it all began. The comics. Did you like that intro? Very I feel that like you've just sat there for 20 thorough. minutes doing bugger all. You know I'll have made a mistake somewhere. Probably. I always do. Yeah. Even if some... email it. <laughs> and point out that I got something wrong. Fortunately, they can't see me spelling. Yeah. After five years of trying, Superman was an overnight success, and after one year of publication, the character was gifted with his own comic magazine, the first time a complete comic had been devoted to one character. Superman issue one, which we are reading from Superman Archive Editions Volume 1, there it is right there, which I got on holiday in Florida for $10, mm-hmm. I was dead impressed with that, I mean it's not in the best of condition, the cover's got a little bit of mankiness on it, but it's not awful. Superman number one dropped on May 18th, 1939, with a cover date simply of 1939. It boasted 64 pages of action, all in full colour, and that it was the complete story of the daring exploits of the one and only Superman. The cover, which has become as every bit as iconic as Action Comics number one, shows Superman at the apex of a jump. High above the city, his face boasting a slight smile, one leg held higher than the other, one arm pointed downwards. He could, for all intents and purposes, be flying. I was just going to say, what do you think of that cover, Ron? But you don't have much of an opinion on the. No, I, I think that, well, to me anyway, that cover's been more iconic than the action comics one. Well, the one of him hoisting the thing across? Yeah. Why? Because, 
whilst it shows his power, it's not really focusing on Superman. Whereas this, it's all on Superman. He's the central image. Yeah. Alex Ross has recreated both of them at this point, hasn't he? Didn't yeah. he recreate the cover for Action Comics, for Action Comics 900? Mm. And he's recreated the cover for this, just somewhere. Is it in one of his mythology books? Yeah. I forget which. I know he's, he's recreated that one because I've seen it. Um, Superman number one is essentially a reprint of stories originally featured in Action Comics number one, two, three, and four, plus a two page text story so the comic would qualify as a magazine and thus more favourable newsstand rates. Superman, Champion of the Oppressed, was written by Jerry Siegel with art and letters by Joe Shushner. In the news offices of the Daily Star, Clark Kent, clad in a suit, fedora, and glasses, asks to see the editor. He is rebuffed by the secretary, but tries to secure a writing position anyway. After being told he's no good without experience, Clark changes into Superman to eavesdrop at the editor's window. He overhears news of a mob attack on the country jail and speeds over there. A prisoner has been released from his cell and is about to be hanged. Superman interferes and learns that the man has been held for the murder of Jack Kennedy, but is in fact innocent, as is the woman on death row for Kennedy's murder, Evelyn Curry. The prisoner states that the real murderer is B. Carroll, a singer at the Hello Nightclub who rubbed Kennedy out for being a two-timing slime bag and then framed Curry for the murder. This snippet of information is enough to get the editor of the Daily Star to give Clark a job and he is ordered to follow up on the story. Superman confronts Carol, who after trying to seduce the Man of Tomorrow instead pulls a pistol on him. He takes her to the Governor's house where he forcibly enters the building and after a brief scuffle with the Warden's security provides evidence of Curry's innocence and takes his leave after gifting the Governor with a bound and gagged P. Carol. The next day Clark is relieved that Superman is not mentioned in the paper and Clark is given a steady gig as the reporter at large regarding Superman stories. After taking down a wife-beater, Clark asks out fellow reporter Lois Lane, but whilst out dancing, Clark is manhandled by hoodlums. Lois takes matters into her own hands and slaps the hood who cuts in, and he follows her after she leaves the club. With a few of his boys saying, <laughs> I should say that like that, shouldn't I? With a few of his boys, see, he kidnaps Lois to teach that dame a lesson, but stood in the middle of the highway is Superman. He leaps over the car, then lifts it up, shakes out the human contents and hangs the ringleader on a telegraph pole. He tells Lois, you needn't be afraid of me. I'm not here to harm you. And he takes her back to the city. The next day, nobody believes Lois, because she's a woman, see? And she gives Clark the cold shoulder, but no matter, as Clark is quickly sent to San Monte, a small South American republic where there is a war going on. For some reason, Clark instead heads to Washington, D.C., where he attends a Congress hearing and learns that Senator Barrows is taking meetings with an unknown man. I thought it was also pronounced Congress. Shut up! <laughs> After Greer leaves, Superman grabs him and takes Greer on a whistle-top tour of the skyscrapers, threatening to electrocute him and then leaping for the Capitol building. When it looks like he misses the building, a terrified Greer fears that he will lose his life. And so begins the startling adventure of the most sensational strip character of all time, Superman. Do you know what was interesting about this? Mm-hmm. Apart from all of it. Yeah. The opening is straight out of, or would be adapted, almost straight for the very first episode of the George Reeves TV show. Clark would go out on the ledge and eavesdrop through the window. Yeah. And the origin is very, very... In fact, the origin on the first episode of the George Reeves TV show is the first 20 minutes of the movie. It's that faithful to the comics. Apart from his mum and dad being called Sarah and Eben. Right. Instead of Jonathan and Martha. Eben. Eben Kent. For those interested, the conclusion of this tale, entitled War in San Monte, follows straight on 
in this comic, but originally appeared in Action Comics number two. Where Superman discovers the man behind Greer, and he and Lois head to San Monte, where Superman averts a war, saves Lois from being executed for a crime she didn't commit, and causes the death of at least two people. Granted, they were really bad people, but this is a significant difference to the character, and just one of the many differences in these early depictions of Superman worth noting. Wow! What a beginning! I loved this! In the space of 18 pages, we're given the character's origin, introduced to his alter ego, given the setup of the strip and his relationship with Lois. Granted, Lois is a bit of a biatch to him, but whatever. Superman thwarts a vigilante lynching, saves a woman from death row, catches a femme fatale, breaks and enters into a respected citizen's house, terrifies its occupants, throws a wife beater into a wall, asks Lois out on a date, trashes a thug's car, saves Lois, and discovers corruption in government. He then scares the crap out of an innocent, albeit dodgy, man to get the information he requires. This was awesome. I yeah. thought this was fantastic. Do you know, I really learned to love the Golden Age while I was doing all this reading for this. Did you? Yeah, I just love a Superman who just doesn't give a rat's ass about the law. He's not bothered, is he? You don't work with the police yeah. in any way. In fact, the police are actually out to get him in a couple of strips' time. Um, it's great. It's really good. The first two pages, if you've never had the opportunity to read Superman number one before, are a two-page summation of the origin. I chose Superman number one instead of Action Comics one because there are an additional six pages of art in this story not present in the Action Comics original. These six pages consist of this first two-page spread that details Superman's origin and would probably be comics' first retcon. In the admittedly rather cramped first page of Action Comics number one, not reprinted here, there is no mention of Krypton or the Kents. In this issue, we get a very faithful origin and one that has largely remained unchanged for 75 years. The child is rocketed from Krypton. He's found by the Kents, here named Murray, with no name for the male, although he would later be called John, and taken to an orphanage. They don't question that he's in a spaceship, if people from around 1908-ish would even know what a spaceship was. They return to adopt him, and in a humorous speech, the orphanage is glad to be rid of him, as he already has his powers as a baby. The Kents imbue him with a sense of obligation, and upon their passing, he becomes the champion of the oppressed, Superman. No attention is paid to how he got the name, or the costume, or how the glasses disguise came about, but it's interesting in that it's Parkent here, and in all future iterations of the origin, that is afraid Clark's powers will make him feared and shunned by society, something that it would take the writers nearly 65 years to follow up on. Murray and John Kent, as I've mentioned, would already be, re would be rechristened Sir and Eben Kent in the 1942 novel The Adventures of Superman by George Lowther, and this name would be used in the first episode of the George Reeves TV series in 1952, oddly after they'd already been renamed Jonathan Martha in comic stories from 1950 and 1951, respectively. See, so you know in the beginning bit, mm. Jonathan and Martha Kent don't even raise an eyebrow to the rocket. No, well... See, th this issue was published in uh, 1939. Yeah, this was 1939, so but it was originally II, published in 1938. World War II would have only just started. Yes. So, it's, it's not dodgy at all that a rocket's shown up. Yeah, but for the characters, it'll have been something like 1908, yeah. wasn't it? For Superman to be an adult of around 30 years of age in 1938, mm -hmm. this will have taken place in 1908. Right, okay. Wouldn't it? 18, 28, 28. So, 
Math account looks like a guy in that bottom panel. <laughs> well, she looks like a dodgy hustling guy. Jonathan and Martha looks like Billy Batson. He does look like Billy. He does look an awful lot like Billy Batson. That's very true. Um, Maybe that's where Billy Batson came from. But do you not think it's remarkable that this origin is essentially unchanged? You can embellish it mm. as much as you want. You can do stuff like, well, we have to have meteorites bring the rocket down now because we've got satellites in orbit that monitor stuff. Yeah. And they, they tend to skip the orphanage stuff now. Yeah. But they don't really have him have his powers as a baby anymore. And you can embellish where he gets the name from and stuff. But essentially, this two-page origin is Superman's origin. Yeah. It's timeless. It is arguably the best origin in comics. Because it's stuck. Yeah. And even more than Batman, whereas Batman, everyone says, well, Batman is the most realistic. You and I have discussed before that we don't think Batman is in any way realistic. And I've rebelled more and more against people saying he's realistic as I get older. Yeah. Because I don't believe it. I don't believe Batman is any more real. Just because he's not got superpowers, that arguably makes him even more unrealistic. Superman's more realistic yeah. than Batman. Superman is more believable. Yeah. Because this origin is perfect. Mm. It was perfect in 1938. It's perfect now. You can embellish it. You can you can make Clark more like Peter Parker and make him more mopey as much as you want. And you can faff around with ephemera that doesn't matter. But the origin is brilliant. This first two pages tells you everything you need to know. That's all you need to know. You don't need to know anything else. And then you're straight into the story, which I thought was brilliant. I was also amused by the panel that stated that nothing short of an exploding shell could penetrate his skin. And after lots of panels of Clark leaping buildings and lifting cars and racing trains, this statement is punctuated by a doctor's needle breaking. Yeah. That's not very dramatic <laughs> compared to everything else, but highly amusing. Yeah. And showing that his ordinary life has been affected by his abilities. There's no evidence of the costume in the early panels. Um, he's leaping tall buildings in a single bound, or an eighth of a mile anyway, in his kids' clothes. He's lifting a car over his head just in a pair of jeans. Although they didn't have jeans in 1938, did they? Did they not? In just normal clothes. It's only in the last panel the costume appears. What I find interesting is that um, both Jonathan and Martha are dead before he's Superman. Yeah. See, they change it a lot, and I think, isn't it only been recently where they have both been killed before he's Superman again? Yeah. It's only in the new 52 they've they've gone back to that original idea, because in the original stories they were both dead before he was Superman. Yeah. And then when they retconned Superboy into it, Mm. Jonathan and Martha were alive throughout him being Superboy, but then they died. And there's different tellings of the story that Jonathan outlives Martha. Yeah. And it's Jonathan that dies after Martha. That's in the novel. Is it? I think so. In it's Superman. Yeah. Yeah, and that's also been like that in the comics as well, I think, that mm. Martha died first. And then they've switched that around for the movie. Yeah. And the first episode of the George Reeves TV series where it's his dad that dies first, not Martha. Right. And then in the film, the Christopher Reeve movie, it's the same. Mm-hmm. And then post-crisis, both of them were still alive. Yeah. Until Jeff Johns took Brainiac. over with Brainiac. Yeah, and he killed Jonathan off, didn't he? Yeah. And then in... Did he not die in between that? Like, no, I don't right. think so. He died in Adventures of Superman 500, but he came back. Yeah. He had a heart attack and they pumped him back to life. Um, New 52, they're both dead again, aren't they? Mm. 
So you know, after, after having read this, there's a lot of golden age in the new Action Comics. Mm. In fact, issue one of Action Comics is a golden age story. Yes, and if he'd carried on doing that, I'd probably be enjoying Action Comics more. But he's wimped out as he's gone along. I'm reading it more as it's a golden age Superman story with a Morrison twist. Yeah, but it's not a good Golden Age Superman story. It was when it started out. He's too much of a wimp as like Superman. The first issue. Yeah, okay, the, the early ones. Yeah. I'm in total agreement with you. But as it's gone along, he's too much of a wimpy Superman. Superman's a lot of things in these stories. A wimp isn't <laughs> one of them. Uh, 60 odd years later, an entire television series will be devoted to these six panels where he doesn't wear a costume and it'll last for 10 years. They'll get, <laughs> they'll get 10 years out of that. Yeah. Which I'm quite impressed with. Um, page three. Uh, this could simply be the changing of the times, as my granddad's told me, that before formalised education and qualifications, if you proved you could do the job, they hired you. But Clark just shows up at the Daily Star with no experience or qualifications, just his gut instinct that he'd make a good reporter. That's it. Can he write? Can he sniff out a story? Does he have any contacts? No, he just thinks he'd be good at it. Um... The editor, not named in this story, but will go on to be called George Taylor, then assigns a story to somebody else, and Clark steals the story. Yeah. So, you know... Didn't the uh, make it out in a later issue that he was a journalist in Smallville for the newspaper, for the school newspaper or something? I can't remember if that was a later issue of the, the comic. I think in some Superboy strips he works for the school newspaper, doesn't yeah. he? So they retcon that, that, because that, that is always something that does kind of bug me a little bit. Like in Superman the movie, he just rocks up at the, the Daily Planet oh, after yeah. 12 years and being in his fortress, job. and they give him a job. Yeah. I mean, at least in Lois and Clark, he's got evidence of his writing. Yeah. While he's been travelling around the world, he's been writing reports for news, local newspapers. Mm. So at least he does have evidence of being a reporter. And I think Lois and Clark mentioned at some point as well that he worked for the Smallville Gazette. Yeah. But, yeah, he just... He does the same thing in the George Reeves TV show. Yeah. He just rocks up at the Daily Planet and says, I would be a good reporter. And we he, believe and, you. And Neil Perry White kicks him out. <laughs> but he goes and, and steals the story there as well. Yeah. So, <laughs> it seemed to be perfectly acceptable newspaper journalism behaviour yeah. uh, in the 30s and the 50s. Um, also a sign of the differing times. Did you think this was odd? On the bottom of this opening that page. lynching just yeah. happens and everyone's cool with it. Yeah, there's, there's people, did people really just form vigilante lynch mobs in 1938 if justice didn't go their way? Uh. No wonder Superman was a vigilante. <laughs> Nobody raised an eyebrow at them, apparently. Um, they break down a cell door, rip the prisoner from his cell, are about to lynch this poor guy when Superman shows up. Where are all the police on duty at the jailhouse? Do you think they've slipped him a, a $10 bill? <laughs> yeah, they're said, all for it. At 12 o'clock, you be over the road getting a drink. <laughs> the police are like, well, saves on the taxpayers' money, doesn't it? Atticus Finch sat on the lawn. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Um, this is also a very different Superman to the one who'd become known as a big boy scout. On page four, Superman punches the would-be lynchers' lights out. He then and puts it's Superman, so he could have killed yeah, them. Yeah, so he could quite easily have killed them. But that's another thing with the early George Reeves TV show. He's punching people left and right <laughs> in that show. And all the time I'm watching it, I'm going, I just wish just once he'd punched somebody's jaw off. <laughs> because that would have been hysterically Super funny. Super Dread. <laughs> you were the fist of Super Dread. Thud. <laughs> Followed by a loud squelchy noise and his hand just penetrates his skull and goes up through the back of his head. <laughs> that would be brilliant. See in the front of my fist, see? <laughs> oh 
to you, mate. A couple of pages in, Clark learns about B. Carroll. And then he phones the Daily Star. It was an important call, because he doesn't bother putting his glasses back on. He's dressed as Clark Kent, but he's not putting his specs back on. Yeah. Which I thought was quite amusing in panel three of, of, page, of that page, page four, I think. This is also something that would be a recurring motif in the early strips. Clark would regularly pound on somebody in his civilian guise, and Superman would regularly take on gigs that involved he'd be disguised as somebody else. In the comeback of Larry Trent from Superman issue two, Superman Burley appears in costume. Page five, Jack Kennedy would also be the name of John F. Kennedy, 35th President of the United States, who would have been about 21 years old when this story was published. This is probably a coincidence. Probably. I would imagine. Unless uh, they foretold the assassination. Unless they foretold the assassination. Which is which what some people think. There was an issue of Superman where he was talking to President Kennedy. Yeah. And um, the cover has him revealing his secret identity to him and saying, if you can't trust the president, who can you trust? And that issue hit the stands the week after Kennedy was shot. And suddenly you're like, they, they were just on down the barrel end of a lot of negative publicity, despite the fact, obviously, the story had to have been in prep long before it happened. Yeah. So it was really just an unfortunate case of timing. <laughs> very, very sad. This page here, page six, is where the Action Comics one started. So if you bought Action Comics number one, you didn't get those first five pages, six pages. So you didn't know why he was doing all no. that? No, so you didn't know why. He, this is why I picked this one. I think those extra six pages flesh the story out much better mm. than just starting on page six. Um, speaking of page six, B. Carroll is a true femme fatale, going from denial to trying to seduce Superman to threatening with a gun in the space of three panels. Superman then threatens to snap her wrist if she doesn't sign a confession, which I'm sorry, I thought was great. Superman, okay. This is also one of the truly great things I've discovered going back and reading these early stories in Superman Chronicles. Superman is a true vigilante, whilst Batman, who will debut soon, represents the status quo. Batman is, from very early on in the strip, working with Commissioner Gordon and has the blessing of the police department, despite the fact that he kills people. Yeah. In contrast, Superman works in secret. In Action Comics number 6, Superman's phony manager. Superman is still believed to be an urban myth. And people are still wondering who he was as of Action Comics number 8, Superman in the slums. By Action Comics number 9, wanted Superman. The chief of police, whilst he agrees with what Superman is doing, cannot publicly condone his actions and so brings in a cop with a 100% record of tracking down criminals with the sole purpose of putting Superman behind bars. Adds to this wanton destruction of private property, ambiguous methods, coercion and intimidation. And you have a Superman that couldn't give a rat's ass about the law, he just cares about what's right. And I really like him. Do you know, if I'd have been a kid in 1939, I'd have devoured these. I really would. Also in this page, an early appearance by the Expositional News Network, TM Michael Bell. Although I suppose it's much more likely that they will have just had radios on back then, isn't it? Because yeah. they didn't have TV. So, yes. Uh, as I've mentioned, without the context of the first four pages of the story, discounting the origin recap, page seven is where the action issue begins. And our first look at Superman was carrying a bound and gagged woman who he then ties to a tree before busting down the door of the governor, intimidates his living lover. Well, he is there at bedtime in his dressing gown. What other conclusions can you reach? <laughs> before smashing down his steel bedroom door. 
This is one of the many times in the early issues where Schuster, like Kirby after him, will play fast and loose with the costume, altering the colours and look of the belt, S-Shield and the boots. Yeah, the S-Shield changes on every Yeah, color. well it looks like an F on page <laughs> 9. Um, see, not only does uh, the governor here have a steel bedroom door, mm-hmm. but uh, he's absolutely fine with Superman smashing down all of his doors and then threatening his servant. And he doesn't fear him at all. Nobody fears him. You see, th- this might be fine if the governor was corrupt. But he's not. <laughs> no, he's... See, my thing... My, I, I have a problem with Golden Age Superman because he just... He has no care for the law whatsoever. No, Everyone's perfectly fine with him. And it makes no sense. Because if a guy just smashed through your house, threatened your servant and smashed up your steel bedroom door then you'd be a little annoyed. I, you know, I wouldn't care if some guy's being uh, put on, on death for no reason. You know, if, he, if he's actually innocent. That's my steel door that's just been smashed up by a stranger. Yes. Yes. All of these are valid points. But on the flip side of that, the guy does say, uh, yes, it's made of steel. Try and knock this door down. <laughs> and then there's that really lovely panel after he's just ripped it off its hinges when he stood there with his hands behind his back with that sheepish look on his face going... It was your idea. <laughs> He's like, okay, what is the meaning of this? And I love the idea that the governor's just woke up and turned the light on yeah. after he's bust through the door. So the governor slept through all of that, did he? Yeah. Which I just think was genius. But then the guy is living lover. <laughs> um, the governor's living lover comes back in with a gun and shoots him at point blank range in the governor's bedroom. <laughs> and yeah, you're right, nobody's like, what? I mean... It was a different time. So everyone carried a gun and slept with each other behind steel doors. Yeah. <laughs> In many ways, no different to today. Um, yeah, I mean, I can see what you're saying, but I just thought it was fun, to be honest with you. I mean, if the guy had opened the door for him, he wouldn't have done it, would he? Um, page nine is essentially the end of this first story, the prevention of an innocent woman being executed on death row. There are a number of similar stories that see print and be adapted to film and television over the years, but the one that this bore a striking resemblance to, for me, having just watched it recently with Michael Bailey for a Flash episode we did of Views from the Long Box, is an episode of that show from 1990 called Beat the Clock, right down to having a clock in the corner. Yeah. of the panels counting down to the woman's death. The story is pure pulp noir with an ambiguous hero, morally bankrupt femme fatale, death and a wrongful accusation. It's shot through with such fast pacing and humour and Schuster's art, although crude by today's standards, wonderfully evokes the time period. It does seem odd, though, that Clark, who presumably wrote the story in the paper, is surprised by its contents. Yeah. When he gets given the paper in uh, panel six, and he's reading it, he's going, good, I'm not mentioned. <laughs> and I, the first time I'd read this, I thought, Clark, you, you wrote the story, dude. <laughs> and you wrote it in his sleep. Yeah, I, just, I mean, you know. Because that is one of the things I really did like about these stories. People didn't believe there was a Superman. Because you've got to think 1938, there were no phones. Yeah. Well, no mobiles or no phones in people's houses, that kind of thing. And there was only no radio, cameras. no cameras, or certainly no cameras that you can carry around in your pocket. Yeah. So you basically got your news from the newspaper for the radio. So how many people in this story actually saw Superman? Three or four? So let's let's pretend you're the governor's living lover. <laughs> and you're going up, there was this guy, blue tights and a cape, he ripped the door off, I shot him with a gun and the bullet just bounced off him. He's carted off to the loony bin, isn't he? <laughs> let's be honest. Yeah. So, I, I, I really did like that about these early stories. 
page 10 is essentially a two-page interlude in which Clark is tasked with finding stories about Superman, which is a little convenient, mm. uh, and then gets a tip-off about a wife beating. After the first nine pages showing us Superman has no regard whatsoever for the rights of crooks, here we see he's got no boundaries either. One of the most satisfying visuals of the Golden Age takes place here, whereby Superman busts into the apartment and hurls the wife-beater at the wall with such force that the plaster cracks. Yeah, and how do we know that the guy's beating her? He's holding his belt. Well, and she's on the floor cowering. Well, there is that, but this guy just said a few pages ago... Tell me the truth or I'll snap your wrists. <laughs> is, is now uh, punching this guy out. Um, it's like a double standard for Superman. It's okay if, you, if, if you're trying to save someone's life, but... Yeah, well, I, see, I don't get that he punched him. He threw him into the wall, was my interpretation of it. doesn't him. matter either way, it's causing him a great deal of uh, yeah, pain. Yeah, and the guy seemed to get a knife from nowhere very quickly. And then stabbed Superman with it and it just snaps and then he faints... Yeah. Which, you know... No, I don't mind that at all. I don't mind him hurling a wife Peter into a wall. Wasn't there a two-parter, like, a couple of years ago, based on the uh, wife beater? They did a two-parter just prior to the death of Superman called Crisis in Hand. Yeah. Where Superman was ne- lived next door to somebody who was being beaten by a husband. Mm. And then we saw Straczynski's take on this in Grounded. Yeah, and the wife Peter was brought back in uh, a recent issue of Action Comics. Was he? Mm. It, it might have been the annual, I think. I don't remember. I do remember the uh, the Straczynski one, because we both thought that that was very poorly handled. Mm. Just like him giving guns. Just like him arming people yeah. in Earth 2, Volume 2. <laughs> that, I, I reckon that's got to come back to bite him on the arse in Volume 3. I'll I really do. bite Straczynski on the arse. I hope nobody does that. <laughs> that would be bad. Um... Superman then changes back to Clark Kent as the police arrive, whilst the attacker has fainted after the knife attack on Superman. Presumably his wife was still around. Yeah. Did his wife not see him changing back to Clark Kent? He Already he, knocked her out. He, 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 I don't know. Maybe he ran around the corner, got changed and came back. Because we don't, to be fair, we don't see her moving. No. So it's entirely possible he's either knocked her unconscious or killed her. Because this was a 30s pulp story. Mm. So if he's killed her, there's a thought you know, that maybe Superman should have thrown him head first into the wall. On the, the earth in that uh, page, though, Superman's wearing a wife beater. He's not, it's a shirt! Look, no, look, look at how far oh, his uh, costume it's, goes down. Well, Schuster was notorious for not keeping the costume consistent from page to page, and sometimes not from panel to panel. Yeah. Where he keeps changing how it looks. <clears throat> On page 11, the relationship with Lois is something that could have been fleshed out. Oh, yeah. A little more, couldn't it? Presumably Clark's only been working at the Star for a few days, so a frosty attitude to Clark is without precedent. His clumsy, weak-willed reaction to having the dance being cut in on by Butch Matson also seems unusual if this is the first story. Clark has at no point so far shown any indication of being mild-mannered. In fact, he seems very much a go-get-a-take-charge kind of guy. Lois has a lot of stones for a woman of this era, though, mm. which I really did like, even though she's she's very mean to Clark for no reason. Well, yeah, but if, if Clark has only been working at the staff for a day or two, then how does the, the he even have a history together? See, she says, I'll give you a break for a change, but this is the first time we see her and the first time we see him talking. Yeah, so... There's no indication of how much time passes during the case of this story, is there? I mean, he does all of this. It then says the papers the next day. 
And then the governor has a bit of a panic about this guy not being human. Thank heaven he's on the side of law and order. And then it's the Daily Star. It just says he's reached. So is this the same day? Well, it works in context of the story with them just going for it because it's fast-paced. Mm. But, yeah, the dialogue does imply that they have previous history. Mm. Now, if he's just started working, though, you're right. They can't have any previous history because he's only just started working, though. Yeah. But we'll let that go. Mm. Page 13. Whilst Matson's motives when he kidnapped Lois are undoubtedly unpleasant, and thankfully they're just left to the imagination, because if Mark Miller had written this, the word rape would have cropped up, wouldn't oh, yeah. it? Uh, Maybe Superman... a mental image or two. Yeah, or a full-page splash. Yeah. Um, Superman lifting the car above his head and emptying out like a child, emptying out the biscuit barrel is a wonderful, iconic shot that finally gives context to the cover of Action Comics number one. Add to this wonderful and equally iconic shot of Superman almost intimidating Lois before taking her back to the city. Interestingly, Lois is completely silent in these panels, as if stunned by the only one true man in a city of weaklings and corrupt officials. Lois's true infatuation with Superman would not begin until Action Comics number six, but its seeds are planted here. And again, the don't be afraid of me. I won't harm you. Panel has been reimagined by Alex Ross. Yeah. On a couple of occasions. You know, I don't think the uh, the panel of him smashing the car has that impact when you're not reading it in action comics with that as the cover. You know. No. Because See, if if you're reading it in action comics, you go in and say, "Oh, and that's back to the cover. That explains it." Mm, so Whereas, by reading it as Superman One. Yeah. See, you've also got to put it into the context of the time. There hadn't been somebody like this before. Mm. He created an entire genre. Yeah. We'd had Doc Savage and people like that, but this was a very different kind of character. Yeah. One of the things with the art here is Superman jumps up with a guy and hangs him on the telephone pole. Yeah. The next panel, he stood next to Lois. Uh, he's down there. Yeah. He's got time to get down. See, he, he, he grabs the guy, yeah. jumps away, puts him on the telephone pole, mm-hmm. and then swings away from the telephone pole, and then suddenly he's next to Lois. Maybe he just lands next to Lois. Because he shakes Lois out of the car. But there's no indication that he's landed. Well, that, that's just in between panels, dude. <laughs> They're not showing you everything. relationship happened between those panels. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, there's, there's room for expansion, yeah. for certain. But a lot of these stories seem to... We seem to have gone the opposite way now. Whereas a lot of these stories will do away with minor things like that mm. in the sake of keeping the story moving. We'll now spend page after page on minutia that's not interesting. Yeah. Whereas the reader is going, can we please get the story going? Because we're only interested in selling trade paperbacks now. Mm. Whereas this was a 64-page comic book. That's almost the size of a trade paperback. Yeah. For 12 cents. So you were getting your money's worth. Um, I did find it amusing further down the page. Earlier on, George Taylor assigned Clark to the Superman story. Yeah. Yet he refuses to believe that one of his reporters was a first-hand witness to the deeds of the man himself. Why does he refuse to believe this? Because she's a woman, see? And that's like, you sure it wasn't pink elephants you saw? <laughs> oh, could you be any more patronising? It's like... Well, was it not surprising enough that Lois, a woman, was actually working 
as a journalist. Well, she does uh, earlier on in the issue that she spends all day writing sob stories. Yeah. So in the, this early story, she's not the crusading journalist that we will come to know and love, but she's certainly more than capable of standing up for herself. As evinced by the pack a couple of pages earlier when Matson tries to cut in on the dance, she punches him in the face. Mm. <laughs> Which was, again, hysterical. I really loved this. I really did. Um, again, this is another self-contained story that at the bottom of this page becomes another story for its final third and gives us a cliffhanger ending. Clark is assigned to San Monte, but instead goes somewhere completely different in his pursuit of the story. Clark is apparently given a lot of leeway with his new employee, mm. isn't he? Because the guy says, go to San Monte, see? See what's going on down there, see? And then Kent goes to Washington. Just why not? How did he explain that to George Ted? Yeah, I know he gave me an order to go to San Monte. I just thought I'd go to Washington, D.C. Why is he even going to Washington? Because he just goes there, and then he finds something to do later. Yeah, he goes there to... And he finds all about this senator who's corrupt. But from and the, who happens to be something to do yeah, with San Monte. From the dialogue, <laughs> there, there is... The, he, he just shows up there and then is surprised when he finds something to do. Yeah, and then he goes back to the newspaper. So he probably... He, he goes to a newspaper in Washington where nobody knows him and asks who he is. And it turns out that, by pure coincidence, this is all linked to the San Monte yeah. story. So that worked out well for him, didn't it? Yeah, I'll, I'll give you that that was a bit woolly. He should have sent him to Washington, D.C. Yeah. And then he finds out all about this. But if he sent it to Washington, D.C., he probably would have gone to the other place. He'd probably gone to San Monte. Because <laughs> <laughs> Clark's like, I'll go where I want, man. <laughs> you just keep paying me. I'm doing what I want to do. Um, <clears throat> page 15. After finding out that Greer is corrupt and he's corrupting Senator Barrows, which is somewhere linked to the San Monte case, he terrorises this guy by getting him to spill what he knows. He grabs him by the ankle, carries him through the sky, slides him along a telegraph pole where he threatens him with electrocution, and then threatens to have him fall to his death. <laughs> He's not such a boy scout now, is he? Mm. I thought this was great. I loved this. It dives straight into the action and is actually three different narrative strands in one, with character setup and resolution for two of the stories, and a third leading into the next issue, or story, if you were reading this in Superman number one. It's very fast-paced, and the reader's just expected to keep up. We keep being told that we're in a far more sophisticated era now, as readers. But this multi-layered, complex, noir-tinged tale was aimed at kids who presumably had the attention span to sit and read 64 pages of this, plus text stories. It makes you wonder in what way we're more sophisticated. Kids today probably won't sit and read a 64-page comic. We don't have 64-page comics. See? Although I can see how we've gotten more sophisticated. But at the same time, it's... Like you said, more on trades and not a story. Yeah. Do you think people were just smarter then? Um, You've got enough story in that one tale for six issues of normal comics by today's standards. Yeah. Now, in some cases, that's not a bad thing because they could have fleshed out the whole why did he go to Washington, D.C. thing and the relationship between Clark and Lois mm. and all of that stuff. But you're sacrificing just such a fast-paced, interesting story. So that's your thing. I mean, presumably it had to be a told in one story, really, because because originally it was only in Action Comics number one. Well, that and it's like 
surely you're not going to expect people to buy your comic every week or month because times are tough and all. Yeah. And so, your newsstand may not get them every month. Yeah. That was, distribution was very spotty. So there was that. But So you had to get it all done in one. And that's why you had your fast pacing and things were cut out. But now I think it's more sophisticated because you can put more in there. You can have like multi-layered stories now to an infinite level with so many plot threads going on because you know that you'll be there and the readers will be there next month. In dwindling numbers, though. Yeah. So maybe something's not working. Print. Digital. Well, digital's not working. Have you, brought, no. have you brought digital again? The print's not working because there's the digital. Mm, possibly, which is quite sad, but whatever. Um, did you like that one? Because I'm always interested when I give you old comics. Well, Especially linear ones that don't look like Twin Peaks. Yeah, well, I enjoyed it, but that could because um, I see the similarities to the new action comics. So the fact that you're reading the new rebooted New 52 inspired by Golden Age action comics enabled you to enjoy yeah. the original material. Because if I would have read this like a year ago or something, I would have gone, well, this is a bit crap, and why is the art awful? And, but but uh, after having read Super Gods and the action comics, it's like I'm looking at it again, and I'm going, well, yeah, okay, I can see the... the, the I uh, can see the limitation. The action and the, the storytelling there, and okay, it's not that bad, so... See, I loved it. I thought it was genius. I couldn't help but think if I'd have been ten in 1938, yeah, I'd have read this till the cover fell off. I just have problems with Superman because of how I'm used to Superman now. Mm. This is a completely different person. But that's not the fault of this story. Well, no. But that's the fault of many external influences that we'll go through over the coming weeks. Yeah. But as of this, I liked this Superman. I just couldn't get used to the Superman now I'm used to the Superman we have now you couldn't get used to a Superman who will threaten to snap women's wrists if they don't tell him what he wants to know yeah see because in this one he doesn't go out of his way to kill anybody but he doesn't go out of his way to stop someone from dying no and there is there are certain scenes in other issues where he'll go oh well he's dead well he deserved it yeah so he's not sad if people who deserve it die so his code against killing is only something that will come later on yeah. But he doesn't actively kill people until a much later story. We will. We are covering a story where he does actually kill people. Is that the one with Zod? Uh, uh, no. Alright. There's another one. We're not doing that one. Um, so my next choice of early Superman tale is the Blakely Mine Disaster, also known as Superman Battles Death Underground, which I thought was a rather grandiose title for this. Yeah. I prefer the Blakely Mine Disaster. Uh, this came out on July 5th, 1938, with an August cover date. The cover didn't have Superman on it, so we're not bothered about it. And it would be reprinted along with the other tale we've just discussed in Superman number one. We're still looking at this in my little archive. I say a little. In Blakely Town, Stanislaw Cobra is trapped when a mine collapses on him. Clark heads to Blakely Town and disguises himself as a miner before accidentally falling into the mine. Once down there, he finds the five miners sent to rescue Cobra. He sets them in the lift and up to freedom before pressing on to find Cobra. After locating him, Superman rescues the downed miner, but is told later that Cobra will be disabled for life. Clark follows up on the story the next day, and Cobra tells him that the mine's owner, Thornton Blakely, was well aware of the safety issues, but refused to act. 
Disguising himself as a miner, Superman drops by Blakely's house that night, where a party is being held for the Hoi Polloi. Spotted by two security thugs, Superman allows himself to be captured and pretends he merely wanted to see how the other half live. Rather than beat him, Blakely suggests that the party be moved into the mine. Given that this party is populated by morons, they all agree, and Superman leads them into the mine. Once down there, Superman arranges a cave-in, trapping the party-goers. After panicking, Blakely remembers the safeguards, but because of his lax attitude, they do not work, and the party-goers turn on him. He demands Superman dig them out, but Superman demurs. If they want out, they'll have to dig themselves. The work is arduous, and after a while, they collapse from exhaustion. Blakely moans that if he knew how hard this job was, he'd have installed proper safety equipment. Satisfied, Superman frees the party-goers. True to his word, Blakely makes the mines the safest in the country, and his miners the best treated. Um, the rescue scene in the opening pages, I thought was great, because of its realism. There's been many stories on the news of collapsed coal mines, and in some cases they've worked out well, and in others they've resulted in the death of the miners. Here, Clark again disguises himself as a third party to avoid drawing attention to both Clark and Superman, and leaves out his involvement in his report back to the Daily Star. Presumably in the 30s it was much easier for Clark to slip away unseen. After the rescue attempt we get to page 5, where we, we learn that Thornton Blakely is a thoroughly despicable human being. He shows no consideration for the miners and even blames Cobra for the accident. He says he may, if he's feeling generous, pay some of Cobra's hospital bills, but when he refuses to tighten up safety, Clark's blood starts to boil. It's interesting to note how much heroic fiction is based upon standing up to corrupt officials, normally elected, and representing the little man, and it's a theme that would be parlayed into the future television industry. Siegel, a child of the Depression, would be well aware of the lawlessness of the era, as well as the corruption, and it is no wonder that his fictional counterpart had no time for law or elected officials, as they were invariably the people Superman ended up fighting. Uh, page six was, I thought, a wonderfully satirical page. Siegel depicts Blakely as a high-class thug, and all his friends as snobbish and bland. I would call them caricatures if I didn't see the exact same type of woman on all those real housewife shows on TV showing that we haven't come very far as a society. Superman, by contrast, pretends to be interested in these rich jokers and their lifestyle, but will in fact be their downfall. There's also some chuckles to be had from the security detail. They say to Blakely, let's take us in the back room, he'll squeal. And Blakely advocates such behaviour. Part of me wanted Superman to hand these clowns their heads, cover be damned. But then Siegel shows that Blakely has nothing but contempt for the people at his own party, and is in fact something of a fraud. The small, this small piece of characterization actually makes Blakely a three-dimensional figure, not just a straw man for Superman to knock down. Blakely doesn't just not care for the miners, he doesn't care for anyone. He's a bored rich boy with too much power and not enough interest. On page 8, though, with all that being said, it sure is lucky that Blakely suggested this going into the mine yeah. because Superman didn't seem to have a plan otherwise he does manage to create one with some quick thinking and improvisation but it does involve endangering the party goers does he think that they're worth dying well that, that brings into my problem I said before where he has no care for people whether they're innocent or not because mm. he, he endangers the innocent people here I mean we're supposed to dislike them because the rich in a story where the good guys are poor but there's still innocent people, and Superman's just marched them along to what could be their own death. Superman doesn't take them into the mine. 
And thus it's fine. It's Blakely's idea to take them into the mine. Superman just takes advantage of the fact that they're in the mine. I don't believe that he would have let these people die. I think this was all just a bluff. Maybe not the innocent people. He could have endangered them. Oh, yeah. And he does. Yeah. They're legitimately trapped in that mine. Mm. He's not faked it. Because yeah. he knows he can get them out. <clears throat> um, so, like, on page nine, you've got Siegel adding a little bit extra. Bleakley's reaction when the mine collapses is one of abject cowardice and again adds to his character as he believes he will suffocate. His false bravado makes a comeback when Superman says they have her for 24 hours. But this also shows another side of Blakely's character and offers the path to his redemption. He genuinely did think the mine was safe. Mm. It wasn't just hubris. Yes, he was cutting corners, but he wouldn't have gone down into the mine if he didn't think it was safe. He thought everyone was just BSing him. Yeah. This again, I thought, elevated the character to somebody that Superman can save both literally and morally. Now, granted, he's saving his life literally because of a situation he's caused, mm. but still, I did think that they did a good job fleshing out Blakely's character. Like you say, we were supposed to hate all these people just because they were rich. Yeah. But here we see that the rich guy doesn't like his rich people friends implying that there's a certain element of self-loathing going on. Mm. And he can actually do something to help people by making the mind safer. I liked it. I thought it was quite good. Uh, page 10 in 11, Siegel does a great job of ratcheting up the tension. As the party goes, turn on Blakely, and Superman lets them stew in their own juice. Like Scrooge, Blakely sees the error of his ways, and Superman actually shows some element of compassion for the first time. Granted, the story ends with him threatening Blakely with another visit if he doesn't keep up his word, but Blakely does genuinely seem like a changed man at the end of the story. Um, see, I find it funny in this issue that all the way through it, um, he's called Superman mm. up until the very last panel, but he's not even Clark Kent all the way through it, and he's only in costume for one panel. Yeah, he's, Superman's barely in this story. Presumably you're buying this issue because you want to read Superman. But arguably Superman's in it. But arguably he's not. And he's doing super stuff. No, I get what you're saying. I do get what you're saying, that, that Superman's not in this issue mm. in many ways. Um, I picked this story as being a prime example of the kinds of stories Siegel and Schuster were telling in the early days. Morality tales in which Superman righted some kind of social injustice. Superman has no interest in laws or jurisdiction. He cares about justice. And although no mention is made of Stanislaw Cobra at the end, presumably Blakely made restitution. This was yet another tale of where Superman Burley makes an appearance instead of adopting a different guise, and it is similar to both. Superman plays football, also known as Superman Gridiron Hero, from Action Comics number 4, and Superman goes to prison from Action Comics number 10. In both tales, Superman goes undercover, but in both those tales, Superman changes only certain people, whereas in this tale, he makes things better for an entire community. This is a Superman interested in helping the little person, not maintaining the status quo. And it's stories like this and others in the various archives and chronicles that demonstrate the power of the character and why he became so popular. Whilst these kind of stories would continue for a while, the introduction of Luther in Action Comics number 23 would see the strip start to move away from pulp noir thrillers and further into the mad scientist realm of science fiction. I thought I really enjoyed that one. And I picked it for that reason, that Superman isn't in it. Though I did consider picking Gridiron Hero, mm. where he goes undercover as a footballer. But 
seeing as I A couldn't give a rat's ass about American football and B he's only helping a sports star in that one mm. I was kind of like well I don't really care would he not kill people no, it's Superman doing don't, American football he charges at someone he can go right through them they don't kind of go into that they just kind of gloss <laughs> over that he goes for a quick pass at someone the ball's gone right through his chest presumably the implication is he controls his powers enough to not hurt them yeah presumably <laughs> that's my theory and I'm sticking to it uh, I did almost pick the other one as well that I mentioned uh, Superman goes to prison which was quite interesting because mm. Superman was in prison but I preferred that one because I felt that Blakely actually had a three dimensional character and actually had a character arc he wasn't just the yeah. villain character he wasn't just a bad guy with a bad mind he genuinely believed the mind to be safe and thought all these men were being wimps and why should I spend some money mm. and it was only when he was trapped down there he realised that actually wait a minute this isn't safe and by changing him, Superman's effected change for the entire community. And I liked that. I thought that was really good. Speaking of Action Comics 23, our next tale, Europe at War, was printed in that issue. See what I did there? Very good. You think I just threw all this together? <laughs> Released on February 22nd, 1940, with a cover date of April, the cover has Superman leaping after a woman who is falling from the window. Whilst the cover is pretty nondescript, it's notable for being the first time the DC bullet appeared on the cover. Uh, and it boasts to be the world's largest selling comics magazine. Again, we don't have the original issue for this. <laughs> if we did, I probably wouldn't be living here. Uh, this is from Superman Chronicles Volume 3. Here's what we've got this in. I actually like that cover. Do you? I'm not sure about the moon going over the Action Comics logo. Yeah, because you don't really need that, do you? No. It would work just as well without that. But I do quite like that cover. I like the little corner emblem of him just stood there bursting yeah. out of chains. With Steve Cat. Yeah, they, they still do that. That's, a, that's become an iconic image. Although it does beg the question, who, who chained him up? Yeah. Why did he let himself get chained up? Yeah, unless he's done it deliberately to just show them, yeah. you know, this isn't going to hold me, dude. Because <laughs> I suppose at this point they won't have known that, will they? Mm. Part one of the story actually appeared in Action Comics number 22. Lois and Clark were sent as war correspondents to Galonia that had just been aggressively invaded by the Torrens. Again, if Clark is portrayed as a simpering weakling, exactly why he'd be sent to cover a war, that's is kind of glossed over. For her part, Lois says she's been looking forward to a vacation. Only Lois Lane could think a trip to a war-torn area was a vacation. What's there, Clark meets a glamorous starlet, Lita Laverne. Glamorous starlets were a consistent feature of early Superman strips, with B. Carroll in Superman number 1, Dolores Winters in Action Comics number 20, and if they turn out to be femme fatales, well, so much the better. Clark is convinced she's a spy, and of course she is, and her plan to sink a neutral vessel bringing sympathy for her side. Superman foils the whole thing with some superb action scenes where he fights a biplane and a submarine. Credited to Jerome Siegel and Joe Schuster, Europe at War Part 2 is essentially a completely different story. Walking through the streets of Belgravia on their way to an interview with General Lupo, war correspondents Lois Lane and Clark Kent are hit by a mortar shell. Quickly changing to Superman, he takes to the skies and catches the remaining shells, hurling them back at their attackers and destroying both them and their weapons. Clark heads to the meeting with Lupo, head of the Torrens, who assures him that peace is at hand. However, the Turin delegates are killed as they drive to town and war begins in earnest. Superman learns that Lupo was behind the scheme but is merely a puppet of a man named Luther and that any moment a phalanx of unmarked bombers will attack nearby country, engulfing the entire continent in war. 
Lupo is killed by Luther before he can talk further by a green ray that cuts him in half. Superman escapes Luther's trap and engages the enemy bombers in combat. He quickly dispatches the aircraft under the pilots and tries to warn the two warring countries of Luther's scheme as Clark Kent. Unable to convince them, this puts Clark on Luther's radar and he attempts a kidnap but gets Lois instead. Lois is taken to Luther's Lure, a Bond villain-esque landing platform complete with buildings held afloat by a huge dirigible and asks how Clark found out about him. Lois, however, knows nothing and is held, but a sympathetic guard gets a note from Lois to Clark's hotel. Superman locates the dirigible and rescues Lois, who is being tortured for information, but he allows himself to be captured by Luther so he can learn his crazy plan to rule the world after they are sufficiently weakened by war. He places Superman under the powerful green ray that killed Lupo, and it seems to be working, weakening the Man of Steel. Having had enough of playing possum, Superman escapes his bonds, whirls the ray around, and cuts one of Luther's guards in half! They're in capital letters because I loved them. Luther tries to aim a portable ray at Superman, but Superman smashes them both with his mighty fists. He then grabs Luther, who tries to buy him off, and lowers heads to the dirigible control room. The guards there prove no match for the Man of Steel, and he smashes the control room, causing the dirigible to crash into the ground. Clark then convinces the warring factions of Luther's plan, and a deal is brokered. Clark turns in his story, whilst Lois pines for Superman. Oh, I thought this one was great. Oh, how do I love thee? Let me count the ways. Um, page one. The first panel of Clark carrying an unconscious Lois away from the shelling is excellent. Very exciting and action-packed and an excellent beginning to the tale. Superman's response to hold the missiles back at the aggressors is very in keeping with his early vigilante methods. Whilst the body can be seen fleeing, it's very easy to assume that the remaining gunners were all killed. In fact, Superman notches up quite the body count in this story, doesn't he? Yeah. Well, one of the things I like about panel one is you can see Clark's hat being shot off. Yes. You do you know, I had not noticed that, yeah. Yeah, that's fantastic, that. I loved as well, there's no splash page. It just goes straight into the story, doesn't yeah. it? Which I thought was brilliant. I went literally straight into the story in the first mm. panel. Yeah. Page two. Yes. How did I know that Lupo was going to a bad guy? Because it couldn't have possibly been his evil Sinestro moustache. <laughs> and he's bald. Yeah. All Superman's bad guys are bald. Yeah. I must be evil. <laughs> uh, page four. Luther contacts Lupo in an underground cave replete with flashing lights and death rays. And what we're seeing here is one of the early instances of the strip's move into science fiction. That said, no punches are pulled when Luther's green ray cuts Lupo in half on panel. Uh, it's a more gruesome fate than having his head bashed against the cave wall, as Superman promises to do to him if he doesn't talk, but only just. Because mm. you quite clearly see the ray cleave him in twain. Don't you? Yeah. It's not off par. I mean, there's no blood or anything. But the, the mysterious death ray thing that he, he communicates with Luther with says, Die, traitor! I don't know how we, that, who installed this death ray projector in here. Luther. Presumably. He's a very clever man. Um, page six through seven. Once again, like last issue, we're treated to an excellent aerial action scene where the action ace hurls one pilot out of a plane that has attacked him. 
opens fire at the other planes with the onboard guns, and then, when his ammo runs out, grabs a hold of two of the planes and smashes them together, and then flies his own plane into the remaining aircraft. Whilst we do see at least one of the pilots parachute to safety, one can assume Superman killed at least five people here. Yeah. Granted, they fired on him. (laughs) So, you know, that seems fair enough to me. Yeah. It has to be said that the tale veers off into silliness once Superman boards Luther's dirigible on page nine with talking statues and sci-fi weaponry becoming the order of the day. This first appearance of Luther, no first name given, isn't a particularly auspicious debut for the greatest criminal mind of our time. Of our time. And Superman... (laughs) Thanks, Otis. (laughs) And Superman turning himself over to Luther, even allowing himself to be chained up, doesn't seem that smart when the green ray actually seems to have some effect on him. That being said, page 11, where Superman juggles the guards nonchalantly and then destroys the controls of the dirigible before he and Lois leap to safety is fun. And no amount of talk will convince me Superman didn't kill all those people. He even says, that's the end of Luthor, doesn't he? Yeah. There, there is a stretch of credibility. And, you know, I can get past all the, the Superman and the, the laser beams that cut people in half. Hmm. But, but the... the it just so happens to be that the guard looking over Lois is, isn't under the control of Lex Luthor. Yeah, th- that was rather coincidental, yeah. I'll give you that. And Lex Luthor, an absolutely normal guy with no powers at all, survived the, the fall. And and this is a Superman that's happy to see all these people die. They were bad guys. Well, not all of them. <laughs> I mean, do, are you telling me that everyone on the Death Star was a bad guy? So what you're saying is these could have just been perfectly innocent people who were employed for their ability to control a dirigible. Yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> I'm not arguing with you. I just thought this was great. I thought it was really funny. Uh, page 12. Lois's reaction to being raced across town by Superman is awesome because she loves it. And here on the last page, almost just tossed off, who were... We get the first mention of the Daily Planet rather than the Daily Star and that they're based in Metropolis. Why these changes came about, given that past stories have put them in Cleveland, Ohio, are probably lost to time. But the favourite is that there were a number of real papers called the Daily Star. In fact, we still have one in this country. So that was changed for legal reasons. How Lois and Clark ended up working for the same paper again was just glossed over. Mm. So what I found, there's one thing there on page 44, Yeah. well, of this collection. Of this collection. Clark actually looks like Atticus Finch in panel 3. He does, doesn't he? And one of the things that also interested <coughs> me was the, the uh, issue of Sandman that's advertised at the end. I actually wanted to read that issue of Sandman. Read the thrilling action-packed story of the Sandman battling crime and injustice in every issue of Adventure Comics. Yeah. If we advertise now at the end of every issue... To go and read something else. More people would be reading comics. Yeah, probably. Um, I would imagine there is an Adventure Comics Chronicle somewhere. <laughs> I would have thought so. Um, this was, of course, the first appearance of the man who would go on to become the greatest thorn in Superman's side, Lex Luthor. He will return in Superman issue 4, even though this issue was on sale first. It clearly takes place after Europe at War. With a double bill of stories, The Challenge of Luther and Luther's Undersea Kingdom, where no explanation for his survival at the end of this tale will be given. He'll still have his mop of red hair, though, and we'll keep that until Superman issue 10 in May-June of 1941. 
I picked this story because it already shows the difference in approach being taken to the tales in just a few short years, as well as highlighting the different way the stories will go over the next few. Whilst America has yet to enter World War II, Siegel and Schuster, like Joe Simon and Jack Kirby with Captain America, aren't willing to wait. General Lupo is seen to be quite clearly wearing the Iron Cross, and his army are wearing uniforms similar to the Germans. Superman's involvement is a marked contrast to how he would be depicted in the comics when America would actually enter the war, as though although the newspaper strips and the Fleischer cartoons would show a Superman actively fighting the Japanese and the Germans, the comics would largely eschew that in favour of patriotic covers. However, the story becomes sci-fi towards the end, taking it away not only from the early grungy realistic tales, but also giving the story an element of the fantastic. Luther's dirigible, suspended high in the sky, is attached to a large landing platform with buildings upon it, and Luther's green ray, which can cut people in half, are both out of Flash Gordon rather than the more grounded pulps. And the sheer amount of destruction and death, a lot of it caused by Superman himself, is a marked contrast to the character's latter-day code on killing. Nevertheless, this was a fun, action-packed tale with some superior set pieces. What did you think of it, Michael? I enjoyed it. Did you? With yes. reservation? Yeah. Because, like you said, it's moved from the Superman story that it started it off. It changes, it does a very definite tonal shift halfway through it. Even in the that? issue, yeah, it's a war story and then it's yeah. a sci-fi story. And then it becomes, a, exactly. And I think that hurts it. If yeah. it just kept it as a standard war issue, mm. I'd have liked it a lot more. But I thoroughly enjoyed that one. I mean, I picked that one primarily because it's the first Luther, the first planet, the first Metropolis. But I thought it was a, I loved the set piece in the middle with Superman fighting the biplanes. Yeah. And actually just firing on them. Which was you're right, it is such a different Superman mm. to what we're used to. And it's one of those things where different is is nice. And he's not a wimp. My big problem with the new fifty two, although they're taking a lot from this and certainly the Grant Morrison stuff, yeah. Superman's still a bit of a wimp. Superman's not like a wimp Peter in these Parker stories. Superman. Yeah, it's the the Peter Parkerification of Superman, which I don't like. Mm. Our final story tonight. We close out with another first. The first imaginary story from Superman number 19. Some controversy reigns over this labelling, however, as the wording was not on the original story, but is included in pretty much every subsequent reprint, with it retroactively being called the first of many imaginary stories. Irrespective of how it came out, history seems to judge this as just that, the first imaginary story. And it was on the copy I first read in this very book, from the 30s to the 70s. Uh, oddly, it's missing, presumably for historical accuracy, in the recent Superman Chronicles Volume 10 reprint. So we are reading this in Superman from the 30s to the 70s, which is my hardcover, which is still in immaculate condition. Where did you get it from? Is it not? I can't remember. I've had this for ages. Superman Matinee Idol is on page 150. So let's just turn to page 150. We don't want Mr. Mixy Zip Talk, do we? Mr. Mixer's Piddlick, oh, who was okay. Mr. Mixer's Tipplick on his first appearance, I think. I think he spelled his name wrong in subsequent appearances. Uh, entitled Superman Matinee Idol. 
also known as Superman Cartoon Hero. It came out on September 4th, 1942, with a November-December cover date. The writer, Jerry Siegel, the penciler was Joe Schuster, and the inker was John Sikella. The cover has Superman hoisting aloft a family and automobile that has no tyres. The troubles of war appear to be very far away. Based on the success of the Fleischer cartoons produced between 1941 and 1943, this tale is perhaps not to be taken too seriously. The Fleischer cartoons were the first visual depiction of the Man of Steel's adventures. The radio series debuted at roughly the same time and had the same voice actor in the main role, Bud Collier, but the Fleischer cartoons, named after animators Dave and Max Fleischer, are simply beautiful in both animation and design, and still hold up as quality pieces of work nearly 75 years later. They aged really well as well. They have, haven't they? They're, they're pretty timeless. They look pretty. They're very good, aren't they? Dial the Fleischer cartoons. I love the Fleischer cartoons. I think they're brilliant. I've watched quite a few over the past couple of think, days. I don't think I've ever seen a lot of them because I always say, you know what, I could do watching some and then I start from the beginning. But then I get bored and don't come back to watch them again. Yeah, bored, they're only seven minutes, dude. You could watch them all in half a day. Well, when you've got the brother and sister like I do. Make up. Your sister will watch Superman. Yeah. She watches Lois and Clark with me. Um, not for the last time, an ancillary medium would be responsible for causing changes to the comics. Fearing the leaping that Superman did to get around looked a little silly, the animators asked and were granted permission to simply make Superman fly. The story, such as it is, goes thusly. On a rare afternoon off, Clark invites Lois to the cinema with him. Lois agrees, and they head over specifically to see the Superman cartoon series. Clark is less than happy with this, and as the cartoon unfolds, he's puzzled as to how the producers of the cartoon seem to know so much about him. As the drama unfolds on screen, off screen, Clark must use all his guile to distract Lois from the on screen events that may jeopardise his secret. That was pretty much it, wasn't it? Yeah. That was pretty much the story. Uh, page one really does self-aggrandise the cartoons. The talk of the talkie industry, they claim, and favourite entertainment of millions, yet an acute embarrassment to Clark Kent. Page two, the comic features a mishmash of two cartoon episodes, The Mad Scientist and The Mechanical Monster, with artistic licence taken for drama, yet it contains an odd discrepancy. Clark spends the entire story distracting Lois at opportune moments, yet the opening credits clearly spell out his secret, and yet Lois completely misses this. She must have watched the credits, as she claims never to have heard of Action Comics, the magazine Superman's exploits are based on. Did that slip by, or have you not watched the Felicia cartoon recently enough to to remember that? I love the idea that who disguised as... (laughs) And Lois, shut up! Can't hear the screen! Um, Clark obviously saw the first cartoon because in panel four he spells out the plot for Lois. Yeah. He actually tells her, in the first cartoon release, Superman sent the mad scientist to prison, but he first had to battle a heat ray and smash the savant's laboratory. Lois is like, when did you watch this without me? That is the first episode. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's an amalgam of the first two episodes. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> page three. Clark's reasons for keep distracting Lois really don't hold any weight. Why on earth would Lois have to go with him to get a drink of water? Please hold my hand while I go and get a drink of water, Lois. Yeah. Well, how come Clark's only bothered about Lois finding out who he is? I mean, what about all the other people in the cinema who'll find out? 
Now the Paramount even know he's in the first place. And he, it was Paramount writing, writing his newspaper article in the first issue. <laughs> was that how he didn't know about it? <laughs> Perhaps that's why they've labelled this as an imaginary tale. Perhaps. Um, my copy of this from the hardcover edition of Superman from the 30s to the 70s has two pages transposed. Pages 155 and 156 are in the wrong order. Mm. Did you notice that when you were reading it? Uh, no, because I read your note first. And oh, right. I read them in the wrong order. Oh, right, that's fair enough. Okay. Uh, I know that pillbox hats were all the rage, but Lois looks like she's wearing a plant pot for most of this issue. I thought it was a teacup. Yes, it does look rather, rather silly, doesn't it? Um... The way the comic's drawn is very clever. Um, the real world stuff had standard panels, but the movie within the comic has film strips down the side of each panel. Yeah. Which I thought was really good. Mm. And the art's great in this one. I think it's more John Stakeller at this point than Joe Shuster. Yeah. Would be my guess. Um, but it's lovely to look at. I really do like it. Especially in black and white. Yeah. It's brilliant in black and white. Uh, Clark's logic is very silly here. I mean, I it's very silly out. all the way he, through. He's alright with other people finding out, but to stop Lois from finding out who he is, he knocks her pocketbook onto the floor so she can't see the screen, okay? Yes. She can still hear it, though. Yeah. <laughs> I love that Lois gets very excited about all this. On page six, I adored her cheering herself as the Superman on screen saves her from being stomped on by a giant robot. In fact, with rare interjections, Clark lets Lois watch the Superman portions of the cartoon unmolested, and there's a wonderful sequence of panels on page 11 where the mad scientist shoots at Lois, and Superman catches the bullet just moments from her face, a gag that would be repeated in an episode of Lois and Clark. Superman would fire a gun at Lex Luthor, and then just get in front of him and catch the bullet and say to him, you want to know how fast I am? Which is, which is one of the best scenes in that series. Yeah. Very, very good indeed. Uh, page 12, the excitement is just too much for Clark and he has to leave. Oddly, Lois accompanies him instead of just saying bye, especially as the cartoons are only in between 7 and 10 minutes in length. They don't even get to watch the main feature. Uh, which I thought was a bit strange. Unless it was just a showing of Superman cartoons. Yeah. That's all it was. Essentially, this was a 12-page advert for the cartoons and is labelled as an imaginary story, which probably explains why Clark is so preoccupied with Lois seeing his secret being exposed on screen, yet doesn't seem at all bothered, like you pointed out. Yeah. But everyone else in the cinema now knows who he is. He'll <laughs> boost the daily planet ratings. He'll boost circulation of the yeah. planet, that's why he did it. Uh, the on-screen depiction of the cartoon action is well handled, although the comic version talks far more than his on-screen counterpart, as one of the hallmarks of the Fleischer cartoons was the brevity of dialogue. The mixing up the plots of two cartoons, even though Schuster and Sakella do make the mad scientist look like his on-screen counterpart, seems to imply that Siegel had seen the cartoons but plotted this story from memory. Uh, I picked this issue as a fine example of the kind of cross-pollination between comics and other media that still goes on today. This is in no way a serious Superman story, certainly compared to the other picks tonight, playing more like a farce than anything else, but it's an entertaining farce, and one that cannot fail to bring a smile to the reader's face. As per the cartoon, Superman can now fly and looks a little stockier than in earlier tales, but his costume is now far closer to what we recognise as Superman, with the boots with the W shape on them and the clearly defined S shield. 
There is also the ending in which both Clark and Superman on the cinema screen behind Clark wink at the audience. A popular Silver Age device here employed, I feel, to highlight the overall jokey tone of this tale. In fact, this kind of in-joke mockery of your own character predates Stan Lee's similar treatment of the Marvel heroes by a good 20 years. It's easy to see why this has been retroactively labelled an imaginary tale. There's no way the predominantly anal, retentive comic readers, of which I am one, would accept a universe where Superman exists, also having a Superman cartoon series which gives away his ID. Superman would have a series of movies based upon his adventures within his fictional universe where he would be played by actor Gregory Reed, who Superman would help out on many an occasion. <clears throat> did you like that one, Michael? Um, I actually did. It was fun, wasn't it? Yeah. It was just a fun story. That's all there was to it. Which was your favourite of the four stories? The first. You like the first one? Mm. I liked them all, otherwise I wouldn't have picked them. Um, before we conclude... Perhaps the most interesting story from the 30s slash 40s was one that never saw print. According to the fantastic Superman Through the Ages website, Siegel and Schuster scripted and partially drew a story scheduled to appear in Superman issue 8, in which not only was Clark and Lois's boss named Perry White for the first time, but Superman would also encounter a glowing green rock from his home planet that would weaken and completely remove his powers. In the course of the tale, remember, not an imaginary story, Lois would discover that Clark and Superman were one and the same. Clark Kent, Superman! And for those listeners at home, <laughs> Dad just took his glasses off. Yeah, well, my voice changed, because I'm now Superman. You stood up a couple of minutes. I did, and I straightened myself up to my full six foot four. Uh, for reasons lost to time, the story was nixed and forgotten about until Mark Wade discovered the script in 1988. He tried to get it published, but Schuster's original art had long since been lost. Alex Ross tried to draw the story in 1998, but again to no avail. All of this is covered, should you be interested, in Alter Ego magazine issues 26 and 30, with some of Schuster's art published in Steranko's History of Comics and Alter Ego issue 37. Superman Through the Ages has taken it upon itself to recreate the comic using Schuster's art were available and following Siegel's script and it is well worth the read to see how different the Superman legend could have been if Lois had discovered who he was so early in the strip. Alas, this incarnation of Superman, despite the Golden Age not officially ending until the early 60s, would be all but gone by the early 40s. The no-nonsense, take-no-prisoners, doesn't-care-for-the-law-only-what's-right version of Superman would live on in future tales, one very important one of which will be covered right here on a future show. But as well as making appearances in All-Star Squadron and Infinity Inc., he would have a number of memorable team-ups with both the Earth-1 Superboy, remember the Golden Age Superman never was Superboy, and his Earth-1 counterpart in the really rather excellent DC Comics Presents Annual Number 1. He plays an extremely important part in the Crisis on Infinite Earths, where, after finishing off the Anti-Monitor, he would be given a richly deserved happy ending where he and Lois are seen to wander off to a happy ever after. And this is where he would stay if creators that cared for the characters had their say, but in the all-new, all-mature new DC he would be brought back in Infinite Crisis where he would be killed off by Superboy by creators only interested in shock value storytelling rather than preserving the character's integrity. Well, I've told you about the Didio introduction to uh, Infinite Crisis. No, you've not. I, I did at one point. Go on then. Where I did tell you that they did it for shock value. Yeah, to kill off the Golden Age Superman. Because I already told you that. 
what the, what the main goal with Infinite Crisis was to create a bigger death toll than Crisis on Infinite Earths. Oh yeah, I remember us having that discussion where yeah. I said if he's looked at Crisis on Infinite Earths and read that and solely gone, there's a lot of people dying in this story. <laughs> he's missed the point of the story. Yeah, that's like creating a Star Wars film that has more deaths in than the first one, <laughs> simply because Alderaan blows up. <laughs> yeah. That's missing the point. Yeah. I'm shocked that Dan has completely missed the point, I tell you. Shocked <laughs> and surprised. Oh, wait a minute. No, I'm not. <laughs> I'd wanted Michael to actually read Infinite Crisis, because I bought him the Omnibus for Christmas. I bought the Omnibus. Did you, did you pay for that with that Christmas money? Right, okay. He bought the Omnibus with his Christmas <laughs> money, and I wanted him to have read it so he could talk about it a bit more, but maybe we'll bring it back in a future show. Yeah. When you've read it and you can discuss it. It's been it. a challenge getting through it. Yeah. Well, it is. It's quite a mighty Omnibus. 300 ish uh, pages in. Yeah. Oh, well done. I didn't think you'd read that much of it so far. Um, they would further piss on the legacy of the Golden Age by having him return as a zombie in Blackest Night. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Dan DiDio. <laughs> I'm Dan DiDio. Five-year timeline, and I'd mess up everything. <laughs> Me? I prefer to remember him as he was. Squinty of eyes and stocky of build. He could leap an eighth of a mile, raise tremendous weights, run faster than a streamlined train, and nothing less than a bursting shell could penetrate his skin. He was the champion of the oppressed, the physical marvel who had sworn to devote his existence to aid those in need. Superman. And that about wraps it up for our very first Happy Birthday Superman show. Sources used this week include Superman Archive Volume 1, Superman from the 30s to the 70s, Superman in the 40s, The Superman Chronicles Volumes 1, 2 and 3, the Max Fleischer cartoons and the documentary on the Superman 14-disc DVD release, the websites Superman Through the Ages at www.site.supermanthroughtheages.com through spelled T-H-R-U, the Superman homepage at www.supermanhomepage.com and Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics at www www.dcindexes.com Next time we delve into the 50s with a quartet of Superman tales. The mightiest team in the world from Superman issue 76, the menace from the stars from World's Finest 68, the Supergirl from Krypton from Action Comics issue 252 and the super key to Fort Superman from Action Comics 241. I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. Uh, Michael looks tired now. Uh, I will see you next week. Bye-bye. Up in the sky, look! It's a bird! It's a plane! It's Superman!
his comics is that the devil will make work for idle hands to do production. And all opinions expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew, and you probably shouldn't take them too seriously. All music and sound clips used in the show are for illustrative and review purposes only, and no infringement is intended. Andrew and Michael make no money from the production of this show, which is a source of much consternation. New episodes drop every Thursday over at Two True Freaks. Libson.com, which is spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N. Old episodes of the show are also archived on the Two True Freaks internet radio feed at twotruefreaks.libson.com. If you wish to communicate with Michael or Andrew or any of the things they have discussed about on the show, you can email them at heykidscomics, all one word, at virginmedia.com. If you wish to view the covers of the comics we've talked about this week, we have a website, www.heykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com. If you are so inclined but don't actually want to drop us an email but just wish to ask us a quick question or say hi, you can Facebook friend us. We're using Hey Kids, all one word, as the first name, and comics as the surname. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. Hey Kids Comics.